This is Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness. Life-Changing Wellness. Here's Dr. Ward Bond. I'm Dr. Ward Bond, and I welcome you to Life-Changing Wellness, Episode 105. This episode of Life-Changing Wellness is brought to you by Wakanaga, the makers of Kyolic Aged Extract Garlic, quality supplements that are backed by science for heart health, immune support, and more. I have personally taken their fine products for more than 25 years, and of course, you should too. So check them out at kyolic.com or find them at your favorite natural health store. Now, before we begin, please head over to iTunes after the interview with my guest today. Rate and review the show for me, and I thank you ahead of time for making our show great. And I encourage you to look up my show page on RadioMD.com slash Dr. Bond. Well, my guest today is a returning guest to finish a part two of a series on his brand new book. We have Alec Klein back. He is a best-selling author and award-winning journalist, formerly of the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal. His groundbreaking investigations have uncovered a wide array of wrongdoing and set free several prisoners who were wrongfully convicted of murder and accused of other crimes. He has also helped dozens of excessively sentenced women gain their freedom through parole and commutation. And today, we we continue part two about his new book, Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over. Welcome back, Alec. Great to be here with you, Dr. Bond. Well, I want to dive into what you're doing right now. So I want to talk about your work on behalf of prisoners, freeing those who were wrongfully convicted or excessively sentenced, especially, I believe you started in the uh, Oklahoma penal system and also elsewhere across the country. What have you accomplished and how gratifying has that been? Well, I got to tell you, you know, I've been all over the country. I've been in prisons everywhere you can imagine from coast to coast, hearing these uh, really terrible stories of uh, inmates who are suffering and in some cases wrongfully convicted or excessively sentenced. I mean, it really covers the range. I helped a a lady... uh, uh, regain her freedom in Oregon on the West Coast. She was a stay-at-home mom who didn't even have a uh, parking ticket to her name when she was accused of medical child abuse. And it was a horrific experience. She faced, I believe, 30 to 40 years in prison if convicted, which would essentially have been the rest of her life. A terrible situation. And, uh, I worked with a number of uh, people on that case, and we were quite fortunate. We had uh, access to a number of records that showed that essentially this wasn't her doing, that it was the doctors who had prescribed medication. It was the uh, brain surgery who determined whether uh, one of her kids deserved the brain surgery. It wasn't up to the stay-at-home mom to decide it. But in the end, prosecutors dropped all of the major charges, And she was reunited with her family, which was, I got to tell you, an incredible experience to see firsthand when a family's been ripped apart, but then you see them come together again. And I've spoken with her, uh, Kate Parker, since then, and it's a wonderful story. They're all together, the family, and it's a wonderful thing. It doesn't always work out that way. I also helped a, a Miami man who had been convicted of murder and had spent many, many years in prison. Well, we tracked down uh, a key eyewitness whose nickname, believe it or not, was Maniac. And, oh. 
Wow. The, the, it was a nickname, by the way, that this individual had earned because he was quite a tough guy and put his fist in a lot of people's faces. But as it happened, authorities had been trying to track this guy down, maniac, but never could find him. Well, we found him and we actually found him in a prison for an unrelated charge. Went down to Florida, not quite sure what he had to tell us, but I'll never forget. I was sitting in the cafeteria of this prison and he starts to tell a story, which is that he actually witnessed a murder. Never said anything about it because he said it was a code of silence in this part of Miami, where if you said anything, boy, oh boy, you'd be in a lot of trouble. But he saw the murder and authorities got the wrong guy. Well, we ended up uh, putting this out there um, as a, a story to explain what had happened. And the truth is the prosecutors were none too pleased about it at first. Uh, you know how it is. They had a conviction. I'm not sure if they wanted it undone. But in the end, I think it took about three years. But the individual who was wrongfully convicted of this murder and was going to essentially spend the rest of his life in prison was set free which was an absolutely amazing thing. He was out there and never thought he'd see the light of day, but he did. I could, if I could tell you about just another one, there was a uh, daycare worker who uh, had been watching an infant who became unresponsive under her care and ended up passing. Well, this stay-at-home, this worker, she was accused of first-degree murder, sentenced to 20 years in prison for that murder, and as we investigated, we were able to obtain old police records, and we found the proverbial smoking gun, which was a document from one of the police detectives. And it was written to somebody else, basically saying that the doctors who had uh, conducted the autopsy were not convinced that this was a matter of murder. In other words, could have been just an accident, could have been, you know, something else, you know, a pre-existing medical condition. Well, that letter had never seen the light of day during the trial. It had been essentially withheld from the defense, which is, by the way, called a Brady violation because you can't have a fair trial if you don't even know all the information, especially information that might point to her innocence. We found this later letter. We published it. It was entered into evidence. It opened a federal hearing, reopened a federal hearing, which was quite unusual. And the federal judge excoriated the prosecution for hiding or not producing this letter and ultimately set this lady free. And it was an amazing thing. She got out after oh, nine years or so. Wow. And one of those moments, I actually met her right outside the prison gates as she was being freed. I'll never forget it. We took her to a uh, crate. Uh, what's that place called? Called the, uh, uh, the restaurant. Um, oh, Cracker Barrel? No. Cracker Barrel, thank you. Cracker Barrel. <laughs> she sat there. She had never, she in 10 years hadn't used a stainless steel knife. She hadn't had uh, a salad in 10 years. And she had a steak, which, of course, you don't get in prison. Yeah. And it was an amazing moment. Although I got to tell you, even after they get out of prison, even if in her case and in other cases that I've examined that their uh, convictions are overturned or vacated, it's not a cup of tea because it's hard to, to transition back into society. But there have been a whole number of cases, I won't bore you with all of it, but where I've been able to help a number of people, dozens of people regain their freedom through parole, through commutation. And I got to tell you, it's really gratifying because you know that it, it helps not only the individual, it helps their families, it helps their communities. 
there's so much pain and suffering that goes on when somebody has been put away for something they didn't do. And when you get to see them be reunited, it's, um, it's a real blessing. And I feel honored, frankly, that, you know, if I was able to help in any small way, that that's a good thing. And I continue to do this. I'm constantly on the phone with inmates and their families and other people trying to understand these different cases and trying to bring them home if, if that's possible. And by the way, you know, I'm not saying if they did something bad, that that's a good thing. You know, obviously, you know, they have to pay their due, but sometimes it may be a question of whether they were over sentenced, wrongfully convicted, something else, but there's all sorts of suffering inside prisons. I've been in a lot of prisons. I've been on death row in different parts of the country from California down to Florida. And you know, one of the strange things is you, you actually see faith in a beautiful way inside of prison. Really? They've, yeah, because they've lost everything. They've lost their families. They've lost their children. They've lost their life. They're, they're stuck in this horrific situation with cockroaches and, you know, oppressive heat and all these terrible conditions. They've been beaten and all these terrible things have happened to them. But the one thing in many cases that really kind of keeps them going is their faith. And it's a beautiful thing to see, you know, it's kind of like one of those revelations for me to see like that God in many ways is never more present than among those who need him the most. And I see that inside of the various prisons I've been in. So it's quite humbling if you, if I might say, but it's, it's well, a mission for me to try to help people like that. You know, it's amazing because my gosh, how many times did the apostle Paul go to prison? You know, much less huh. all of the disciples, right. you know, and yeah. and to con- and continue to have that faith. But, you know, I've got some questions because all of these these stories that you just shared with us, I have a lot of questions right now flowing through my head. Like, <laughs> what in the world is wrong <laughs> with these prosecutors? Yeah. I mean, are they are uh, they just is it just a notch in the belt? Do they realize that the person <laughs> sitting there is a human being? And, and yeah. I know some of these because I know some of these cases, and, and I'm just going to say it because somebody needs to because the elephant is pretty large in the room. There's yeah. a racist factor mm. going on, and, and, I, yeah. and I've seen others who are, are working in the same type of area as you. And it what and, and what's weird is, is I've asked them a few questions like, okay, so you and I are Caucasian. And then I've asked someone who's doing kind of like the same thing, and they're African-American. And the questions that I ask them, their answers are completely different. And then all of a sudden we see these prosecutors who they just freaking, you know, after the judge just locks them away and throws away the key, they're just forgotten about. They're, they're, it's basically... erasing a human a human being from the face of the earth while they're still alive and oh, it, it, yeah. it angers me it, it angers me to see that process or has has prosecutors lost the ability to realize that there's a human factor here that that person maybe they do look big and bad and they look like a criminal but they could actually be innocent it's such a beautiful question I got to tell you you know, some prosecutors, it is, you know, they are trying to win at all costs. Not all prosecutors, but it, it, the, the problem to some degree, Dr. Bond, is that we have an adversarial criminal justice system, which is to say 
you got winners and you got losers. And to some degree, I wonder, is it really a question of getting to the truth about what actually happened, or is it about winning and losing? That happens to be our system. And further, you know, the prosecutors um, have a job to do. It, it is not easy. And they also have tremendous resources at their disposal. I would say they're among the most powerful people in the world, at least here in the United States. But the weird thing is that I have come across some cases where the prosecutors years later will say, you know what? I feel really bad about this. This is bothering my conscience for years. I actually just got a letter from a prosecutor in a recent, a case that occurred um, decades ago, but the letter was recent. And he said, look, this lady, she got uh, life without parole. It was just too much. And I've been, it's been, it's been on his conscience for years. And he wrote this letter on her behalf because he was admitting that, you know, he was, he was going to win. He knew he was going to win. He never lost. He was talking about having a jury that would have done whatever he told them to. He thought he could have gotten the death penalty if he called for it. And yet he knew that this wasn't right and he wanted to right the system. So there are some prosecutors who acknowledge that, you know, sometimes they go too far with it. There are other prosecutors who it's, it's win at all costs. Uh, it, it's a shame because they have so much power, and those who are the defendants don't have all that power. Many times they have no resources. They can't afford the experts who are quite expensive that they need to testify on their behalf. And it's a tough situation. And then to, up to your other question about racism, you know, look, the studies bear out what you're saying is if you are black in America, you are at a much higher likelihood of getting arrested, getting convicted. And, you know, it's just a huge endemic problem in our country and it needs to be addressed. And, and you know, it, it's such a large problem that, you know, it, it has to be a conversation we're having because, you know, it, it isn't just that it affects you if you're African-American. It affects all communities because we want everybody to be risen up by it. And so, you know, I mean, I don't know, on some level, what you're talking about is our basic humanity, right? Which is, can yeah. we do the right thing? Yeah, and, you exactly. know, unfortunately, I got to tell you, the scary part is the system is fallible. It doesn't always work. In fact, there are studies that show that people who were sentenced and executed to death, in some cases, were probably innocent. And what do we make of that? Well, let me ask you this. With prosecutors, if, if the mentality is win at all costs, you're putting the notch in the win column. And after you get so many wins, what is the next step for a prosecutor to become a judge? Is that what they want? Well, you know, it, and not, not a great question. The truth is, as you know, in many cases, the DAs are elected to their position. And so they are a political creatures, which is that they yeah. know that, you know, being tough on crime is popular to a large degree with most constituents. Uh, and yes, sometimes they move up from being prosecutor to a judge, and from there they keep moving up the ranks. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, at what point are they immune from the vicissitudes of the political process? And, you know, I got to tell you, even maybe one of the differences is if you are presidentially appointed to the federal bench, it's essentially a lifetime appointment. And so to a large degree, they don't really care what you think because you're kind of, you know, immune from the politics yeah. and they can do what they want. But I'm not saying they always get it right either. 
but our system at the local level is such that there is a lot of influence. And I have to tell you, the more resources you have to defend yourself in a case, the truth is, I think, you have a much better chance of defending yourself successfully. And the problem is, so therefore, you got a lot of people in prison who don't have much in the way of money who are there because they didn't really understand what was happening. They didn't have the resources. They had a public defender. And by the yeah. way, public defenders, those are good people, but they are also, as I understand it, overloaded with cases. So if you're overloaded with cases, I mean, how are you going to really focus on any one particular case to make sure it gets all the attention it so, deserves. So they cut, a lot of de- well, yeah. so in other words, Alec, they, so, so a public defender being so overloaded with cases, do you think that they are more apt to get the client to cop a plea so they can just move on to the next one? Well, I got to tell you, uh, taking a plea studies show is one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions. Wow. You tell me what that means. I mean, imagine this. So in other words, you know, you didn't do it. But you're being told, take a plea, you'll get five years instead of 20 years. And you're thinking, gosh, you know, what are my chances? Five years might be, I mean, do I really want to do 20 years? By the way, I know a lot of people, I've talked to these inmates just recently. One in particular, uh, her name is Kelsey Dotson. She was offered, I believe, a five-year plea deal if she just, you know, admitted to the crimes. But the fact is she hadn't done them. You know, this is what she said. (sighs) So therefore she turned down this deal and instead got 20 years. And so, you know, it's like this problem because, you know, yes, to some degree, most of these cases are, you know, settled through some sort of plea deal. But are we really getting to justice if you're pleading to something you know you didn't do? Yeah. And so let me ask you this. Doesn't every inmate in prison say that they're innocent? And then what makes these prisoners different? I mean, seriously, I mean, I watch the movies. They're always saying I didn't do it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's such a great question. And and I got to tell you, I I hear from inmates all the time and they explain to me what happened. It was an accident. They'll say the gun kind of just went off or, you know, they didn't didn't know it was going to happen. It happened and they were a bystander or what have you. Now, The truth is, you know, to some degree, will we ever know for sure exactly what happened unless there were cameras and all sorts of witnesses and so forth? Now, I got to tell you, there are other prisoners. I actually just spoke to one who uh, he actually admitted to what he did, and it was gruesome. I mean, it was hand-to-hand combat with uh, a knife and a rope, and I'll spare you the details because it was (laughs) really bad. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a difference when somebody shoots somebody from a distance versus when you're literally rolling around in the dirt with a knife and a rope. And in this instance, you know, this guy, he just owned up to it. He said, look, you know, he explained to me what happened. He was an alcoholic. It was a bad situation. He got into it. He didn't think this was going to happen. He ended up serving uh, 25 years in prison. Now he's out. He's got his freedom after 25 years and it didn't look like it because he he had life without parole at first but part of it you know is that if you acknowledge your role you take responsibility you live a new life in his case he had no misconducts he was being productive while in prison taking programs he was not the same person that he was 25 years earlier and you know sometimes yeah they do admit it not not always you know it's hard i think to some degree for inmates to always say, Hey, this is, this is what I did, but they sometimes do. I'm not saying it happens all the time, but yeah, it's not uncommon for people to say, Hey, I didn't do it. It was an accident. 
and you have to sort of sift through it and you may not fully know it every single time. I mean, I've been down that road. You know, you have to look at the records, the police records, you got to interview people. It's a very complicated process. And, you know, some of this is subjective. You know, what person person A remembers about what happened. Mm-hmm. Were they telling the truth? Did they cut a deal for themselves to get a lesser sentence? All I can tell you is the system is fallible. We know it's fallible. We know that we sometimes put people away for crimes they didn't commit. We know that sometimes there are false accusations, that people are suffering in prison for things they didn't do. We don't know the full extent of it, but it happens. It's a fact, and it's an unfortunate fact. But actually, this was really sort of the breakthrough was DNA. When DNA came about, then they could prove with absolute certainty that based on the DNA they discovered, whether it was the blood or something else, they knew that the person didn't do it because it wasn't their blood. So all I can tell you is it's something that is troubling to me because there's a saying, by the way, I, I don't remember who said it, but which is that, you know, you don't want to convict somebody of a crime, even if that means that some other people maybe are released who did commit the crime. You want to make sure that you are not convicting somebody who didn't do the crime, who was falsely accused, because the damage is so severe. It's just so basically wrong about how the system works. And if you don't have the resources, Dr. Bond, if you don't have the money to spend the tens of thousands, the 50,000, the 100,000, you know, mortgaging the house and getting the the proper representation, you know, it's going to be a tough road to find your way to, to justice and freedom. Yeah. And, you know, the the other question that popped into my mind, because this is, you know, it's the system needs to be reworked from beginning to end. I mean, it even goes down to the parole boards, you know, yep. and, you know, to me, it's almost like they're judging a book by by its cover when yep. when an inmate comes in, hopefully at the fifth time that uh, they're going to get released for the fifth parole hearing. But then they don't. And yep. I understand that there are people out there that will never get released because, you know, the crime they committed, you know, is is now part of history. And they're mm-hmm. not going they're not going to be, you know, my gosh, half of if not all of uh, Charles Manson's people are never going to get released. And if they are, right, it's going right. to be crazy. And uh, I mean, my gosh, even Elizabeth Smart's one one of those people were actually released from prison, which still shocks me to this day. And right. but what needs to be done to rework the system? Because, you know, to me, when when somebody says, OK, you're going to get life in prison. Well, first of all, how old is this person? What is life? I mean, did they commit the crime when they were 45? So if you gave them a 25 year sentence, they're going to be 70 if they completely live it out. So to me, okay, you know, you basically took their life away to say that they're going to get 150 years is kind of stupid. And then if you get an 18 year old that gets life, whoa, okay, now let's back this up a bit. What would you consider life? Is 40 years enough? And at the same time, based Mm -hmm. on based on a crime, what, you know, where does this person learn their lesson so they can get back into society and hopefully become a a positive role model some way? Absolutely. I mean, there's actually been studies about this, which is that at a certain point, people actually age out of crime, which is to say, you know, they grow up and at some point, you know, they just aren't going to commit a crime. I actually interviewed an inmate on death row in Florida. I'll never forget it. He was in his 70s, and he shuffled in, uh, shackled at the uh, wrists, 
at around his waist and at his feet. And so he literally couldn't even move that well because he was so heavily shackled. And this is a guy who, even if he wasn't shackled, I mean, he couldn't have caught me in a 25-yard race. And, you know, it was interesting (laughs) because I was thinking, gosh, you know, here he is, you know, sitting with me, completely shackled. He's been in prison for decades. And, you know, but what are we, what are we doing here? Like, you know, is this, you know, by the way, we spend an absolute fortune on every inmate who is uh, in prison, taxpayer money. And in fact, if you're on death row, it's even more expensive, as I understand it. So there's this whole issue, you know, if you've aged out of a crime, then, you know, does it really make sense to keep spending the billions of dollars that we're spending? And then to your other point about the parole board, it's a numbers game. It's to some yeah. degree, which is to say, let's say there's a five member parole board. I've been in these rooms and, you know, just sitting there, who's going to vote how based on their background. They're a police officer. So the answer is no. They're yeah. a minister. The answer is maybe yes. But the thing is, you know, to some of that is, is, is a bit of politics, which is to say, wh- where are they on the spectrum of this? You need like, say, three out of five votes to get through the parole board. You still have to go to the governor is the governor going to sign off uh, to let this individual go? And who knows? It depends on their politics. So much of the world has become politicized, even about whether somebody should be set free. But all I can tell you is that we know that there are countless people out there who are in situations that are really bad. I mean, not to mention, I was just talking to somebody about this. Imagine you've been put away for a long time for a marijuana-related charge. Now, by the way, the vast majority of the United States, I think it's over two thirds of the states have legalized marijuana in one fashion or another, medical marijuana or uh, recreational. So right. on the one hand, people are being thrown in prison or have been thrown in prison for marijuana related charges. But on the other hand, the, the uh, government's in the business of helping to create marijuana businesses. So which is it? You know, isn't there some sort of issue here? What do we do? And, by, and these also happen to be nonviolent offenders. You know, they. Well, may yeah, be- I say let them go because you, you've you've changed the laws. You've made a substance that's been illegal since the age of time, and now you're right. making it legal in certain aspects. But if it's recreational, right. and the only thing you can do to the person sitting in prison, you have to prove were they going to distribute. But but yep. even then. They should be let go. Now, of course, what's the difference? So you just got caught with a baggie or did you get caught with a tractor trailer yeah. rig, you know, full of 30 tons of weed? You know, so right. I guess there's a difference. And at the same time, yeah. were you working for the cartel? So, you know, yeah. I can understand that. We've got to break this down. Yeah. But for the majority of these people, if they're in county jail, city jail, or maybe they're serving, you know, a few years in, in prison and all they did was get caught with weed, I'm like, you know, let them yeah. go for heaven's sake. What's the big freaking deal? You know, they weren't dealing heroin. It was just freaking weed. Right. Well, especially, <laughs> you know, because one of the issues is, are they, do they represent some sort of risk to society? But if they're, yes. you know, by the way, a lot of these individuals are themselves drug addicts. In other words, they have a substance abuse issue. I actually helped the lady who had a substance abuse issue and she went through drug court she failed drug for court. She ended up, you know, relapsing, if you will. And the judge threw her in prison for life, which seemed kind of like, well, wait a minute, are you kidding me? You threw away for, for that's going to cost an absolute fortune, by the way. But yeah. she was a nonviolent offender who failed drug court. I was able to help her 
regain her freedom through commutation. But like, you know, how much does that make sense? You know, at what point are we diverting so much of our tax dollars to nonviolent offenders who, you know, represent no risk to society who might actually need treatment, not not warehousing? You know, a lot yeah. of these individuals need some sort of drug rehab. It's a substance abuse issue. And they're not getting it, by the way, in prison, as far as I know. When I've talked to yeah. inmates, first of all, it's really easy to get uh, drugs within prison, as I understand it. Uh, but they're certainly, in many cases, not getting the rehabilitation that they need, even though sometimes they call it that. Yeah. Wow. My gosh, Alec, I could talk to you all day long, and that is the God-given truth. <laughs> you and I have Same done here. such a, a big, you and I have done a series of interviews in the past few weeks, two podcasts, <laughs> and of course on my television show, and it, it you have information. I mean, literally, we have a penal system that needs a completely redo. Um, yep. The court system is the same way, and... Yep. I'm going to tell you this right now. You, I think you need to start your own podcast and and use it as a voice to uh, you know to somehow some way make change. So people like you, I know Kim Kardashian has stepped out into that uh, realm as well. And I cannot even imagine the number of inmates that are contacting you and and others trying to get their cases reheard. And it and in a way, I guess it's kind of like being retried in a way, yeah. uh, but without the prosecutors in the way and, uh, to get a more, uh, positive outcome. And Alec, uh, my gosh, keep up the great work. I mean, that's all I can say. And ladies and gentlemen, you need to check out his book aftermath when it felt like life was over. And I can tell you this, if you listen to Alec and I's first interview he goes into some of the details of what actually happened to him. So he knows what it's like to be wrongly accused and then come out the other end in a positive way. But at the same time, he's taking that same positive energy and he's changing the lives of others who are sitting behind bars right now that are now looking well, not some of them no longer look through the bars, but some of them out there are looking through the bars with that glimpse of hope, knowing that it's coming soon, that that door is going to be unlocked. They're going to walk out that door. They're going to be free. They can leave the past behind, and they can focus on a future that uh, they never thought would ever come to them. And Alec, it's it's kudos to you and all of uh, others like you who are doing a tremendous work uh, out there to uh, get these people free. And at the same time, if they've been excessively sentenced, uh, get that time cut down. I can say, Dr. Bond, I could talk with you forever about these issues. To me, you're so right. I, I believe in hope. And by the way, I am trying to put together a podcast called Life on the Other Side, which focuses on inmates. And I got to tell you, in the end, I think the answer largely comes down to faith, in my opinion, which yes. is about what the Gospels talk about, which is about second chances and restoration and redemption, and that it's for all of us, including the inmates who are suffering so greatly all over the country in prisons. Well, ladies and gentlemen, just remember, um, there are people that there are thousands upon thousands of people behind bars. There are prison ministries that are working so hard to bring faith 
to these people to bring them faith, to bring them hope. And uh, and there's people like Alec Klein out there that are listening and taking these cases and bringing them forth and, and getting people set free so they can start a new life all over again and leave the past behind. So, ladies and gentlemen, please, again, pick up Alec Klein's book, Aftermath. Let me get the title here, Aftermath, when it felt like life was over. And at the same time, when you pick up that book, and as Alec and I will completely agree on, the next book you need to be picking up is your Bible and uh, start reading it because that's well, where only faith the, the greatest book ever. <laughs> that's it. That's where faith comes from. So, ladies and gentlemen, remember catch every episode of Life Changing Wellness. Just hit subscribe on iTunes or on my show page at radiomd.com slash Dr. Bond. And if I can ask you a favor, please take 30 seconds and rate the show on iTunes. And I can guarantee you this, this is a five-star rated episode. So thank you for doing that for me as we want to bring you the best show possible. And now you can download my show on multiple streaming services, Spotify, iHeart, iTunes, the list goes on. Just look up Dr. Bond's Life-Changing Wellness. You can learn more about me at drwardbond.com. And again, thank you for listening to Life-Changing Wellness. And remember, something spectacular happens when you treat your body right. Have a blessed day, everyone.